listening to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. This month's episode is on the theme of inheritance, and we've got a cracking lineup of academic experts talking about money, intelligence, and the natural world. But before we dig into all of that, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for some feedback. Are there any burning questions you'd like us to find the answer to? Or is there a theme that you want us to explore next? If so, email podcast at theconversation.com. We would love to hear from you. Now on to our inheritance. When you die, should you have the right to pass whatever wealth you might have accumulated onto your family or friends? A lot of countries take death as an opportunity to earn some extra tax revenue. In Britain, inheritance tax is incredibly unpopular, and many critics say it is no longer fit for purpose. Will DeFreitas has been speaking to two academics who think we can do better. The inheritance tax should be a pretty popular way to raise revenue. When someone dies, the government takes a chunk of their wealth before it is passed on to the beneficiaries of their will. In the UK, that currently means 40% of everything above a £375,000 threshold. For properties, the threshold rises to £1 million. The tax aims at the rich more than the poor and fights back against the natural tendency of money to accumulate over the generations. So that's how it works, in theory. And yet the inheritance tax is widely disliked by both experts and the general public. Some point to various loopholes, others say it is unfair to pay tax on wealth that was already taxed once when first earned, others that it's unfair to suddenly have a huge tax bill in one go when a loved one dies. So, is the inheritance tax still fit for purpose? To find out, I spoke to two academics. Danny Dawling is the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography at Oxford and an expert in inequality. I started by asking him... What is the point of an inheritance tax? What problem are we trying to solve? The problem with inherited wealth is it creates gaps between people from birth from the very beginning. And these can be enormous gaps. So if you inherit a large amount of wealth, you need never work in your life. Whereas if you inherit nothing or even debts, <laughs> then you're in a very, very different situation. And with no wealth, it is very hard to establish yourself it's very hard to move away from home it's very hard to get a home and so on whereas with an enormous amount of inherited wealth that can also curtail what you do because you never know what it is like to be normal so there's the problem and for hundreds of years some form of inheritance tax has been seen as the answer i spoke to Jeanette rutterford who is a professor of financial management at open university i asked her about the history of inheritance tax in the uk Well, there's been inheritance tax of some kind since the 17th century because it was quite easy to tax and governments needed money to run their governments, so they used to tax well. Um, It got very complicated and slightly simplified at the late 19th century when it was made a graduated tax, so in other words, the rich paid a higher percentage than the poor. In 1949, this was simplified further into a single tax called estate duty, which had a highest rate of 85%. And then various things happened. A Labour Party got in in the 70s and introduced something called capital transfer tax. And then after capital transfer tax under the Conservatives, inheritance tax came in, a single rate tax at 40%, which is what we have today. 
But today, the tax is riddled with loopholes. Now, if you're married and you own a property worth a million, by about 2020, you'll be able to not pay inheritance tax on a million pounds, only if it's in property, only if you're married. The other loopholes are the seven-year rule, which is if you give something away more than seven years before you die, inheritance tax is not liable on that. And there's a tapering. It's slightly more generous if you die, say, within five years. Farmers, or perhaps more relevantly, big aristocratic landowners, also have a big loophole. You don't pay inheritance tax on farmland. And pension funds, if you put your money into a pension fund, you get relief at the marginal rate as you go in. So if you're a 40% taxpayer, you get relief on that. And if you die before the age of 75, the beneficiary gets the pension pot free of tax. Jeanette emphasises that these loopholes are an inherent problem with inheritance tax itself. The problem is that you've got quite a long time to plan your tax on death because you, you know, you're probably going to last if you're 70 or 80. So you, you can think about ways of avoiding tax and giving it early and putting it into tax-efficient vehicles. So I don't think there's any way you're ever going to close all the loopholes because people can just go to a tax planner and sort it out. Danny Dawling agrees. Well, inheritance tax was a very good solution when it was first introduced because it took people by surprise and they didn't have mechanisms uh, to avoid it. But over time, people have worked out how they can avoid inheritance tax. The richest people have all avoided it by simply basing themselves in another country, going to Monaco, uh, for instance. But you can also form trust funds, all kinds of things to avoid it. So it was a good tax when it was first introduced, but it's become a tax which is now really only applied to people who are not the richest, but who just fall in the limit for inheritance tax. Because you don't pay tax on the first portion of your estate, in the UK that's the first £375,000, far more than most people leave behind, the inheritance tax should in theory be a progressive tax. That's one where richer people pay a higher rate. But Danny argues all the loopholes mean the tax is not at all progressive. It's not just the very rich. I mean, anybody in the know gets out of paying it. It's quite amazing to look at the statistics of it. I looked a few years ago to how many estates were paying inheritance tax in each local authority district of Britain, and also how many people were dying. And even in the most expensive parts of Kensington, it's only around a tenth of people who are paying it. Um, and, of course, far more than that, a uh, proportion of people will have, at some point have had the kind of wealth that would have made them liable, but they've managed to find ways of squirreling that wealth to somebody else before they, they die, so it's not on, on the books. The, the current mode of inheritance tax is, is really pretty regressive, and that's before you even think of things like people who've got non-dom status, so it doesn't apply to them. So there were all kinds of loopholes in the past, and there were loopholes to it now. Inheritance tax is too easy to avoid because it's a one-off. So if inheritance tax has lots of problems, yet we still want to tackle handed-down wealth, what is the solution? The better solutions we see across Europe are annual wealth taxes of various kinds. Um, There's a whole plethora of these, but the most obvious ones are taxes on housing wealth. It's very hard to hide a house, it's very hard to hide a building, and we generally tend to have a fairly good idea about how much they're worth. And so those kind of taxes... I think are more effective at the moment, probably in 50 or 100 years' time. People have worked out a way to get around them. But those, I think, are more effective than simply trying to catch the wealth at the very end of life at one point. 
a wealth tax has additional benefits, such as for housing. It also helps reduce speculation in the housing market. Uh, because, you know, you know if, you buy, if you buy an expensive house, you're going to be paying a lot of tax each year. So there's an incentive to buy a home that costs less. Something similar already exists in France, according to Jeanette. They also have this wealth tax that just the French inland revenue adds up how much money you've got and charges you an annual tax for being wealthy. And that used to include property and all investments and so on. And now he's changed that, Macron has changed that to just property. The argument being that he wants investment to take place. He wants people to not hold money in property, which is he views as a sterile investment. And many people in the UK have viewed the, the British as far too obsessed with property. And if you think about it, we've got the exact opposite of Macron now. We're giving tax relief to people who own large lumps of property, and he's penalising people who have large lumps of property. The UK think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, recently proposed replacing inheritance tax with a lifetime gifts tax levied on recipients rather than estates. Jeanette says that's also in place in France already. The tax rate that you pay as a recipient depends on how close you were to the person who died. So, for example, a, a child pays a lower rate of tax than a second cousin would pay on receipt of money from the death. And that's worked perfectly well for decades. For Danny, some people put their wealth to better use than others and should be taxed accordingly. He cites the example of Scandinavian countries which have high wealth inequalities yet broadly egalitarian outcomes, as wealthy people there aren't just becoming landlords or doing anything else that curtails others' freedoms. Along with targeting this sort of bad wealth, Dawling also thinks a wealth tax could make society more efficient. There's long been argued a campaign for land value tax because simply allowing people, because their parents, grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents were rich, to hold property and do nothing with it is very inefficient. Whereas those countries in which people can get a bit of land and do something with it tend to do better. There's an economic efficiency argument that says that great wealth inequality results in great inefficiency. Uh, a good example would be Japan. Japan had enormous wealth inequalities before the Second World War, and it had a feudal society in many ways. After the Second World War, the land was redistributed among the people. It was made one of the most equal countries in the world, and it became uh, an industrial powerhouse. So that by the 1980s, the United States was scared about what Japan was going to do with technology and so on. And that was achieved in just 40 or 50 years by redistributing wealth so that you weren't holding down the vast majority of people in society you didn't have this lazy aristocracy at the top who, you know, didn't have to do anything other than, you know, wear clothes that, that showed their social class and act in particular ways. So if a wealth tax is so great, why don't we have one yet? What's stopping us? The, the biggest barriers are the extremely wealthy, the extremely wealthy fund think tanks, like the Adam Smith Institute and the Taxpayers Alliance, the purpose of which is to stop this kind of thing happening. So that's the biggest barrier by far. What tends to bring these things in is an economic crisis. Finally, I asked Danny to imagine a dream political scenario where he didn't have to worry about winning votes or keeping the media on side or anything. In that scenario, what sort of inheritance tax regime should we aim for? My view, but I'm a fairly well-off person, is as an inheritance tax system that encourages people to give around about £10,000 
isn't bad, and it's been suggested that we change the taxation so that it's taxed on the recipient rather than the giver, so that the more people you give your money to, the more you spread it out, the less tax in effect you pay. So you, you essentially say you can give £10,000 to somebody almost tax-free, but if you begin to give them more than that, the tax rate ramps up pretty quickly. So you've got to find lots of friends and relatives to give your money to. The alternative at the moment where you can give large blocks, 100, 200, 300,000 pounds to people, is you literally have people hanging around waiting for their parents to die so they can buy a house. And that is a terrible and awful situation to be in. There are good reasons why this transfer of wealth is not necessarily a great thing. Because hanging around and waiting for your parents or grandparents to die It's not great for family relations. So there you have it. Inheritance tax needs a shake-up for all sorts of reasons, and it might even improve your relationship with your parents. Will Defratis there. Next up, we're zooming out to consider the kind of natural world that we inherited from our parents and how we want to leave it for the next generation. There's a reason that environmentalists often implore us to think of the children when presenting a new petition to save the bees or clean up the oceans. Mass extinctions of species mean that the wildlife our ancestors grew up with is vanishing, and it may mean future generations are left with a smaller and emptier view of nature. Jack Marley spoke to a group of scientists who are trying to restore more vibrant pictures of the natural world, which could make us more ambitious about what we leave our kids. We all want to leave a better world for our children. Perhaps when you imagine the world you'd like them to inherit, it looks like the one you grew up in. Sunny days spent outside with bugs, birds, flowers and trees. But when your kids grow up and have children of their own, what will they think of? Scientists believe our perception of nature and wilderness is shrinking, with each new generation inheriting a smaller picture of what a healthy ecosystem looks like. This phenomenon is known as shifting baseline syndrome. To better understand it, I spoke with Lizzie Jones, who's doing her PhD on the subject at Royal Holloway University of London. My understanding of it is that with each new generation of the population, the idea of what is normal shifts based on people's own personal experience. So that's because the knowledge and ideas from the previous generation is lost and the current generation effectively forgets the past conditions due to a lack of communication. So literally people's idea of what are normal, acceptable conditions for the environment that are worth protecting gradually decline. People just don't notice because people don't realise that it was better before. Cut off from the experiences of older generations, people inherit an idea of normal which forgets how things were even in the recent past. So what was normal for my parents growing up is very different to what was normal for me growing up. And it's not just our relationship with nature where this happens. We can trace shifting baseline syndrome in different forms throughout our lives. So there are loads of social examples, like the smoking ban. The current young generation have never experienced indoor smoking in public spaces, but that used to be the norm. If you told a young person who wasn't aware of gender inequality 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they'd be horrified to think that it was so different. 
And I find it really interesting that shifting race science syndrome can actually help us accept positive change as well. The phenomenon in nature has been mostly negative, however. It was first noticed in fish, which are becoming smaller and less common in the ocean over time. Daniel Pauly, who's a fisheries scientist, first recognised the phenomenon in 1995, and he coined the phrase shifting baseline syndrome with reference to his fellow fishery scientists. So he noticed that each cohort or generation of scientists underestimated long-term change because they compared everything to experiences at the beginning of their career. Since Pauli's study, shifting baseline syndrome has been observed in virtually every environment and habitat, from garden birds becoming scarcer in the UK to ancient forests disappearing in Japan. Our generational amnesia towards the natural environment can also lead us to underestimate the impacts of climate change. Another great example is by Herman Mercer, and they interviewed local people, indigenous people in Alaska. They found that people's perceptions of climate change would vary between generations, and older people would report much bigger changes in snowfall and temperature than younger people because they'd had much greater experience of that change. These examples remind us of how detached modern lifestyles are from nature, which is becoming particularly acute among children. This extinction of experience, as it's known, is a problem for conservation now and in the future. I used to play outside when I was a kid and learn the names of species in my garden, but nowadays children are more likely to play on their phones and not interact with their local natural environment. So their level of experience, whether it's as a child or as an adult, is declining. And if you don't have experience of how conditions are and how they were before, you can't notice change because you've got no baseline effectively or your baseline is off. If that's reflected in conservation managers or decision makers, as poorly found, they can use inappropriate baselines as targets or just they can be less ambitious about the targets that they set and just not try and conserve back as far as they probably should be to help create more functioning ecosystems. It's estimated that over half of the world's wildlife has disappeared since the 1970s. That's little more than a generation ago. But did most people born before then even notice it? As baselines keep shifting with each new generation, ecologists like Christopher Sandham at the University of Sussex are trying to imagine what its earliest position was by reconstructing what the natural world would look like today if humans had never evolved out of Africa. We've kind of extrapolated what's known as a counterfactual. So it's saying, instead of what actually happened, what could have happened? Let's say humans stayed in Africa, we never migrated out. What kind of animals would we see here today? At the same time as early humans began settling around the world, massive species which roamed Europe, Asia and the Americas suddenly vanished from the fossil record. It's not certain if changes in the climate or human hunters were more to blame for the extinctions, but scientists believe the arrival of humans spelled doom for many species. 
we walked out of Africa into Eurasia. We kind of turned left and colonized Europe, turned right and went down Southern Asia into Australia. And that was all occurring 80 to 40,000 years ago. As humans turned up, a lot of the megafauna, species larger than, say, 10 kilograms, went extinct. We lost the biggest species uh, around. So we're saying if people hadn't turned up, if they hadn't brought those new technologies, those new hunting behaviors, uh, we would have expected those species to survive. Uh, the climate change, we, we expect them to survive because for the last two million years, the climate has been going from an ice age into a warm period like it is today. And they survived a lot of that. So what we're saying is we would expect them to have survived again. By looking at fossils from dig sites around the world, Chris and a team of researchers from Denmark were able to map the distribution of these bygone creatures from 125,000 years ago onto our world today. So how different would things look compared to the world we know? I get this feeling that people know more about dinosaurs than they do about the kind of recent past. Uh, when I say recent, I'm, I'm talking about 100,000 years ago or more, but compared to dinosaurs 60 million years or more, that's quite recent. So my area of, of particular interest is mammals, and we've looked at what mammals you might expect to be here today if people weren't. So that would be things like a species known as a straight-tusked elephant, which is even bigger than the African elephant, uh, hippos in the Thames, lions, hyenas, uh, all living in, in Britain. Uh, whereas the woolly mammoth, you know, that famous species that would have been here in Britain during glacial periods, would have migrated up into Siberia. Today, we think of the herds of megafauna you get in sub-Saharan Africa as exceptional. In fact, species of lion, rhinoceros and elephant were once common across all the continents where humans live today. The fact that the Serengeti was once the norm across the world, rather than the exception, illustrates how drastically humans have altered nature. So one of the most striking things about this research is that 77% of large mammals uh, that have occurred in Uruguay are no, no longer with us, they're extinct. That very high number is kind of true of most of South America, a lot of North America and Australia as well. This, this was the area that lost most of their large mammals. But Britain have lost a, a really great variety of, of large mammals as well. We used to have a species called the giant deer, which had antlers that were two meters wide. I mean, it's just this really enormous species of deer. Trees are adapted to be tramp trampled, and that's because elephants and rhinoceroses have, have been trampling them for a, a really long time. Uh, so if you go to the Natural History Museum today in London, you can you can see examples of hippo teeth that they've discovered from Trafalgar Square. If you visited the vast and mostly empty fields of Britain's countryside today, you might struggle to imagine that elephants and rhinos once crashed through thick forests here. If you navigated the crowds milling around the London Eye, you might think it's impossible that hippos once wallowed on the riverbanks below. But all of these animals once called Britain home. Could this get more people thinking about what our natural environment could look like? I've been doing a project working with young people, telling them about this kind of the past landscape. And you tell them that hippos used to live in the Thames, and it, I think it blows their mind a little bit. And it might broaden our minds to think about what species we might like back. Could we have beavers here today? Could we have pine martin? Would that allow red squirrels to come back? There's these really fascinating ecological stories out there, part of our natural history that could get people outside more and, and all the benefits that brings. And if we achieve that, if we open their minds to it, we, we can have more informed conversations in the future about what they want and, and maybe create those kind of exciting visions of more wild and natural futures where, which are good for people and nature. 
Reintroducing species to habitats where they have gone extinct is part of a process called rewilding. Rewilding is a radical concept in conservation. Rather than trying to limit damage to the natural environment and preserve what's left of it, rewilding proposes we make it bigger. Bring wolves back, replant rainforests across Europe, restore oyster reefs and seagrass meadows to the ocean floor. Could this break the malaise of our shrinking natural world and reverse shifting baseline syndrome? Newcastle University researcher and rewilding expert Nikki Rust says perhaps, but we need to tread carefully. Her project, which looked at reintroducing lions to reserves in Africa, highlights the unknowns which currently dog any efforts to rewild habitats with large carnivores. I was looking at seeing whether or not lions could be reintroduced into national parks where they had previously gone uh, locally extinct. I was having a look to see whether or not lions that were captively bred whether their offspring that had grown up in a more natural but fenced environment would act like natural lions. And whilst they naturally were still wonderful at hunting, uh, they could do that very, very well. What we found is that they were not so good at other social skills, and in particular, when it comes to raising cubs and some of the females would actually kill other females' cubs, which is very, very rare in nature, but it was quite common in, in this fenced reserve. The limited space of the national park compelled lionesses to kill other young lions just so that their cubs had less competition for resources. It goes to show how hard it is to reintroduce large predators which have been absent from an environment for so long. But... Rewilding doesn't just mean bringing back extinct species. Particularly when it comes to large carnivores, um, rewilding them into natural spaces is probably one of the trickiest things that we can do. To me, rewilding is more about living in harmony with nature. And it could be as simple as things like not mowing your lawn so to allow say the natural plants to come back up and that can help improve your um, biodiversity in your back garden if you're lucky enough to have a back garden i guess if farmers of today who are you know our natural stewards of the land if they've grown up in a world without large carnivores and indeed without most biodiversity that we had a couple of hundred years ago, then we need to move slowly and take um, small steps for them not to be too scared about this whole rewilding process. By leaving some land free for nature, farmers could allow forests to return on previously cultivated land. This would help stabilise the soil and trap carbon dioxide in the fight against climate change. There's also an argument to be made in encouraging nature for nature's sake for the simple joy of being able to explore more vibrant wildernesses and think about the world we'd like to leave our children. One example that has captured the public's attention recently is the beaver. The beavers that have been reintroduced into certain areas, by them creating these dams, it allows areas to be uh, flooded where they naturally would have been hundreds of years ago as well. And so the biodiversity that used to live in these ponds and streams can flourish too. So great opportunities, yeah. Rewilding's greatest potential may be in the mind. Rewilding our imagination could raise our ambitions for the natural world and help us re-engage with it. If shifting baseline syndrome is a mental block on what's happening in our environment, rewilding could be the cure.
for example, in certain areas of the country, we've we've been reintroducing certain raptor species like the red kites, which have done fabulously well. I think in lots of places in the UK now we're seeing them where we didn't see them 10 or so years ago. And these kinds of, of species, they don't really cause very many problems. So I think, yeah, let's start there and people can then start to appreciate, oh, actually, it's quite nice having these animals around and these plants around that we didn't before. hopefully this can then reverse the problem that we had with shifting baselines and so maybe we can start having more biodiversity than our parents had and then we can see the benefit of this rewilding process and, and we can then hope for our children and our children's children to have even more biodiversity. That was Jack Marley, who's on a science and technology journalism internship at The Conversation, funded by the Lloyd's Register Foundation. For more on shifting baselines and to see some visions of a wilder tomorrow, go to theconversation.com. We've published a story that includes drawings by young people who were asked to imagine the natural world as they would like it to look in the future by scientists at Sussex University and the Sussex Wildlife Trust. You can find the URL for that in the show notes. Hi, my name's Philip Martin. I'm the host of a new show called Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. <laughs> Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? That hot, tense summer was filled with rebellion. People took to the streets outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Columbia University students took over their campus. But all that heat, that anger, that rebellion, 1968 brought us some light too. We're going to bring you these stories from the people who know them best, who were so deeply impacted by the events of that year that they made it their lives work to study them. Tune in starting August 28th, right here. It's Heat and Light. Definitely check out Heat and Light. It's a great new podcast series from our colleagues over at The Conversation US. Now for our final part of this episode, we turn to genetic inheritances. For centuries, researchers have been trying to understand whether a person's intelligence and how well they do at school is linked to their genes. It's a line of inquiry that has a controversial history, and it has been used to further racist and eugenic policies. Yet in more recent years, the search for the link between genes and intelligence has been boosted by new scientific advances, which are revealing the complexity of the relationship between a person's genetics their environment and their intelligence. Gemma Ware found out more. For the last few years, a steady stream of new research has been published on the links between genes and intelligence, on whether how well a kid does at school depends upon their DNA, their genetic inheritance. One group of scientists at the forefront of this research is based at King's College London, home to a study that has been following sets of identical and non-identical twins for the last two decades in order to better understand the role that genes and environment play in our lives. Kylie Rimfeld, a postdoctoral researcher at King's, 
has used data from this Twins Early Development Study, or TEDS, to examine the link between genes and educational success. She's shown that around two-thirds of the differences in school achievement between children can be explained by differences in their genes. Now, in a new study published in September, Kylie and her colleagues found that what's called the heritability of educational achievement isn't just a one-off. If children who do well at primary school continue to do well in secondary school, that's also closely linked to their genes. We found that genetic differences between children are the main contributor of the stability of educational achievement across the compulsory education, really from ages 7 to 16, um, explaining around 70% of the stability. It's worth taking a moment here to understand what's meant by the term heritability. If you listened to our episode back in June on twins, you'll remember how important twin studies are to scientists. While identical twins share 100% of their genes, non-identical twins share 50%. But both sets are assumed to share a pretty similar environment growing up. What we do in twin studies is we compare how similar twins are to each other on traits. For example, intelligence. So if identical twins are more like on a particular trait than non-identical twins, then we can infer that this trait is influenced by the genes and we can estimate their heritability. And by heritability, we mean the proportion of individual differences in a population that are down to differences in the inherited sequence in DNA. What's key here is that such heritability estimates using twin studies don't reflect what an individual child inherits from their parents. They indicate the average influence our genes have on particular traits, such as intelligence. This is done using comparisons between how likely it is that groups of identical twins will share a particular trait, compared with groups of non-identical twins. So there is really now converging evidence for substantial heritability of intelligence across development, with around half of the individual differences in a population explained by inherited differences in DNA sequence. Kylie says that these estimates of how much intelligence is influenced by genetics change as children grow up. While it's 20% in early childhood, it's close to 80% in later childhood. And this is because, as children grow, their environment plays an increasingly important role. So the genetic factors that influence individual differences in early childhood are the same genetic factors that also influence the individual differences in later adulthood. But what happens is that these um, genetic nudges in early development are magnified as time goes on, so increasing the heritability, because the environments we have around us are not at random. So we are selecting ourselves and modifying and creating environments uh, that are correlated with our genetic differences. Alongside these kind of estimates, scientists are developing something a lot more personal, a score that can predict a child's intelligence based on their DNA. We'll hear more about that a bit later. Such research is the latest in a long line of inquiry into what makes us clever. But it's got a controversial history. Some social scientists, such as Daphne Marchenko, a PhD candidate in the School of Education at the University of Cambridge, question the social and ethical implications of research into genes and intelligence. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, Daphne says, scholars made up theoretical arguments about the origins of intelligence, but there was little substance to back them up. 
So for example, physical anthropologists during this time would take cranial measurements and argue that certain head sizes predicted a higher IQ. But their research, which I would say with air quotes, was used to further the argument that white Europeans were intellectually superior to the people that they were colonizing and enslaving. So it was a tool for validating imperialism and colonialism. Then along came a British scientist called Francis Galton. Now Francis Galton, he is a pioneer in the study of human intelligence. He was a cousin to Charles Darwin, and he's considered the father of behavior genetics and eugenics. In 1869, he published a book called uh, Hereditary Genius, and that gave rise to the idea of intelligence as a genetically influenced and a fixed or unchanging trait. Over time, intelligence became a concept studied by biologists and statisticians, and it was talked about in terms of genes and physiology. And in 1904, a British statistician by the name of Charles Spearman introduced what is known as the G-factor. He had analyzed the ratings that he'd collected from teachers and peers on a child's intelligence. And based on these findings, he had argued that general intelligence, or G, as he called it, was common to different measures of IQ. So in other words, he was saying that how well you did on one form of intelligence testing was correlated to how well you would do on another form of intelligence testing, and that G was the common factor between the two. But Daphne says that research of this kind has been used to carry out violent campaigns founded in racist and eugenic arguments against people who are poor or of colour. Theories about the heritability of intelligence have been used to justify things like slavery, they've been used to resist desegregation, to restrict immigration, and generally to validate the socioeconomic and racial inequalities that are commonplace within society. Um, and as an example of that, in the 20th century, the American eugenics movement abused these arguments about the biological origins of intelligence to involuntarily sterilize individuals who'd been identified as having low IQ scores. Um, More often than not, these were people who were low income or were of color. And it was actually legalized in the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell in 1927. And if you look at the records by 1935, all but six states in the United States had attempted to introduce legislation permitting involuntary sterilization of feeble-minded individuals. And after World War II, Daphne says resistance grew against this kind of research, which had been used to justify the Nazis' ideology and programme. So there was definitely public outcry against arguments that there were biological differences between races, that there were genetic differences between races that was then connected to intelligence. Um, But that's not to say that this research stopped, because it did not. If you look at figures like William Shockley, he was a Nobel Prize winner for physics. He, uh, in the late 60s and 70s, was doing research trying to identify the Negro IQ deficit, as he called it, and figuring out whether those African-Americans who had higher percentages of Caucasian genes, as he would call it, uh, had higher IQs as a result of that. It was in 2003 when scientists announced that they had mapped the human genome that another flourishing of research began into the genetics of human behaviour. We have before us now the essentially complete sequence of the human genome, Uh, 2.85 billion bases of sequence 
in the public, public domain for all to see and to use. As it became cheaper to analyse DNA, huge studies of hundreds of thousands of people have tried to pinpoint genes responsible for certain diseases or traits. These genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, haven't been able to identify one gene for intelligence. But scientists are using them to identify important genetic variants that have an influence. Kylie Rimfeld explains. GWAS studies are more and more powerful depending on how many participants are involved in the GWAS studies. So in the more recent GWAS studies of educational attainment, um, they had a sample of over one million individuals. So that allowed uh, researchers to identify over 1,200 genetic variants associated with that educational attainment. Researchers like Kylie are now using the results of these studies to create what's called a polygenic score. So this method aggregates or sums up these thousands of genetic associations, which individually have very, very, very small effect into genome-wide polygenic scores. And what we do with these polygenic scores is then try to predict the variance in a trait, for example, school performance, in a sample of unrelated individuals. In her recent research into how kids do throughout their time at school, Kylie also created polygenic scores for one of each of the sets of twins in her study. And we showed that uh, with these polygenic scores that we created, we can explain up to 10% of why children differ in the GCSE performance. So that is the age 16 performance. But with the new polygenic scores that come with the recent um, uh, genome-wide association study that used over a million participants, we can increase this prediction to 16%. So these are really powerful predictors already. So these polygenic scores are able to arrive at something that's much more personalised. How well children do at school is a complex puzzle, and Kylie says that such methods are trying to separate out how much of that can be put down to genetics and how much to the environment. Yes, we can get more to the individual level with these polygenic scores because we have specific polygenic score for every individual. Um, However, these are kind of used for prediction and prediction involves a lot of error as well. So we could have an individual with very low polygenic score for educational achievement, but at the same time, they would be achieving highest grades, like A stars at GCSEs, and we can have vice versa as well. So we can have somebody with very, very high polygenic score performing uh, poorly at school. But however, we show on average children with higher genetic propensities tend to also score higher in school exams. But Kylie says that right now, these polygenic schools aren't very useful yet at the individual level for teachers in a classroom because they're still talking about average trends. But I think with um, polygenic scores, as they are becoming more accurate and maybe also more specific, they could be used in education together with environmental predictors. For example, we could use polygenic scores uh, to identify children with educational problems very early on in life and then aid in providing both kind of individualised prevention and individualised learning programmes. For example, if we go to more specifics, we could have polygenic scores where we could identify children at birth with genetic risk of developing reading problems or dyslexia. Thus, we could uh, intervene very early and provide individualised reading intervention. And we know that these preventative interventions have greater chances of succeeding early in life. So I think the great strength of this polygenic score is that they can predict 
the kind of later outcomes just as well at birth than in later life because our DNA stays exactly the same. Daphne Marchenko is among those social scientists concerned about the wider implications of this kind of research and the questions it raises. The first of which would be what kind of parents are going to have access to these resources. It's likely that it'll predominantly be parents from upper income backgrounds. It also begs the question of what kind of schools are going to be able to provide those services if they prove to be actionable or beneficial. Again, it's more likely that elite institutions are going to be the ones to provide those services. And so that introduces the possibility to widen socioeconomic and racial disparities from a perspective that at its root is based in genetics, right? What if parents start to screen their children for something like high intelligence during in vitro fertilization, right? So they can produce a child who, say, might be an exceptional piano player or uh, might be very strong in something like math. That possibility, and I know that it sounds like science fiction, and I admit that it is a long way off, but those kinds of things have the potential to increase disparities and produce inequality in a very scary way because it's something that is rooted from birth. She's also worried about the commercialization of research methods such as polygenic scores and how they might be used. So there are online genetic data services like Gene Plaza and DNA Land, which are already trying to provide services to quantify anyone's genetic IQ from a sample of saliva. Daphne's PhD research specifically looked at the way greater media attention on the link between genes and intelligence is filtering down to teachers in the classroom. Uh, I conducted a survey of 660 U.S. primary and secondary school teachers, and I looked at not only the extent to which they see something like intelligence being genetically influenced, but also race and socioeconomic status, because these three concepts have a very connected history. Uh, You can't really think of intelligence without thinking of how it's been used to legitimize race or class-based differences. And I found that teachers who identified as white were more likely to see race as genetically influenced than teachers who identified as of color. Teachers who were female and who were over the age of 65 or who had been in the profession for more than 15 years, were also more likely to see intelligence as genetically influenced. This is particularly worrying for a number of reasons, says Daphne, not least because the US teacher workforce is predominantly white and predominantly female. So it is possible that if teachers are perceiving intelligence and race to be more genetically influenced, then they're not just seeing external or observable differences between themselves and the students that they're teaching. It could be that they're seeing differences from a genetic perspective, which is then contributing to the plethora of research we have that is telling us that teachers are more likely to see students of color in a negative light, and that those views then negatively impact the educational achievement of those children, their access to advanced academic programs like gifted education, their chances of attending a higher education institution. So this is a real potential danger of this research the way it's coming into the public domain in a very uncontrolled way. As a way forward, Daphne suggests that the genetic scientists doing this kind of research should bring in ethicists at an early stage in what she terms a kind of 
adversarial collaboration. Now, adversarial collaboration is the idea that those who are across the aisle, so to speak, when it comes to topics like the genetics of education-related behaviors, work together. At the present moment, we have individuals, say, in the social sciences or in bioethics, commenting on the ethics of this work, such as myself. But we're doing it after the process has been completed. Adversarial collaborations would involve a shift towards having social scientists and ethicists present from the very beginning of the genetics research process and able to proactively raise and address concerns rather than retrospectively. Right now, what we have are people working from across the aisle. There's a very gridlocked debate. When I put this idea to Kylie, she was very open to more collaboration. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more, yeah. She added that there were also important ethical discussions to be had around the ownership and use of genetic information. We at TEDS are mainly focused on the science part, so we are the scientists, we are doing the research, but we are more than open to start these discussions with policymakers and also ethical advisors. So I think our job is to make very clear what the polygenic scores mean, uh, what they do not mean, and how they can be used. Um, in research. Um, So like I said, finding this uh, substantial polygenic score prediction does not mean that um, this prediction is certain. It's very far from it. It doesn't mean that these grades are written in our DNA because these predictors can change dramatically with major changes in environment. Kylie is well aware how controversial research on genes and intelligence is. When you already put genetics and education into one sentence, that already raises controversy uh, because of the history, probably. But I think it's uh, our job as scientists to, to find out why children differ so widely in educational achievement. And we know there is really converging evidence that genetic factors play a huge part. So I think ignoring it would be a mistake. So our job as scientists is to understand this complex gene environment interplay um, to really uh, help children and hopefully uh, inform the policymakers um, about what we find out. All this means having some hard conversations now, while this kind of research is still in its infancy. That was Gemma Ware, one of the producers of The Ant Hill. And that's nearly it for this episode. But before we go, here are some other podcasts you should check out featuring academics and their research. The latest episode of the Trust Me, I'm an Expert podcast from our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia is all about augmented reality and whether one day it might make music a visual interactive experience. In addition to your the physical space in which you inhabit, to overlay amazing virtual creations with which you can interact and you know you can see little critters running across your desk or you can touch the sound as the waves kind of swim around your head in vivid hues search for trust me i'm an expert wherever you get your podcasts from and if you're looking for more science podcasts have a listen to mosaic science from the welcome trust recent episodes have explored what it's like not being able to smile and why we get allergies. That's the Mosaic Science Podcast. That really is it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. 
This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Extra special thanks in this episode goes to Anouk Mie for her help. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. And lastly, please do give us a review on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode, or feel free to get in touch with us on podcast at theconversation.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.